This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As world leaders leave Glasgow jetting off on their private planes, Boris Johnson will hope some big pledges and Jeff Bezos can convince us COP26 has been a success so far. I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. We are in roughly the same position, my fellow global leaders, as James Bond today. Except that the tragedy is, this is not a movie. And the doomsday device is real. On Monday, Boris Johnson addressed more than 100 heads of government at the World Leaders Summit in Glasgow. Over the past two days, presidents and prime ministers have negotiated deals before leaving their delegation teams to talk some more as the UN Climate Summit carries on. COP26 is considered the world's last chance of reversing dangerous climate catastrophe, and leaders have talked a good game about being bold in their ambitions. But has the World Leaders' Summit been anything more than smoke and mirrors? My colleague Peter Walker, the Guardian's political correspondent, and I were in Glasgow to see for ourselves. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. So, Peter, we're recording this in Glasgow after Boris Johnson and Joe Biden gave their farewell press conferences on Tuesday evening. We're just about to head back to London by taking a sleeper train. And that's a bit different to how most world leaders left, isn't it? It is. Shortly before we got our train, Boris Johnson was getting onto his UK liveried chartered jet, which he'd also taken to and from Rome for the uh, the G20 meeting. Um, And Glasgow Airport is awash with jets, you know, big and uh, small. So, so yes, we, 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 are, we are doing it slightly differently. And Boris Johnson claims that this, this jet's running on biofuel. Do you, do you buy that argument that it's, it's actually an eco-friendly method of transport? I very much don't, and I don't think any climate scientist would. I think sustainable aviation fuel is, is a relative term. It was supposedly running on about one-third sustainable aviation fuel, but it's not quite clear what that is. And before Johnson flew it back from Glasgow, when we were on the same jet going to and from Rome, I definitely remember, as the engines like started up, a very traditional smell of aviation fuel. So I don't think it's really that different. Do you think people will have a bit of sympathy with him coming back on a, on a private jet? Uh, he claims that his schedule wouldn't allow time to come back by train. It's a slightly strange one. A lot of these kind of climate debates can get bogged down on the actions of individuals. And in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really make that much difference. COP is about structural change. It's about government's deciding together 
to alter the way their entire countries and economies operate over decades. You know, and that's a much, much bigger thing. Um, you know, it's only, what, four and a half hours on the train, so he could have done it. But then when you've got the security of a PM, you have to presumably take over an entire carriage or stuff like that. You can understand why prime ministers do fly. But it is about the symbolism as well, right, isn't it? You know, it, for the prime minister to be taking, lecturing people on climate change and then taking a flight doesn't look that great, does it? It doesn't. I mean, Johnson's allies might argue he doesn't necessarily lecture people that much. He doesn't claim to be, you know, this kind of paragon. When he was asked what he'd done to kind of, you know, cut whatever his carbon footprint was, he was asked if he's eating less meat. And he kind of dodged a question just saying he's trying to less eat less of, like, most things. So he doesn't necessarily preach... But it is quite difficult, and you know this is why the issue of COP26 is this, you know, it was this enormous thing with thousands of people flying in from around the world, and and you know I guess you could argue all day about whether it's you know how important it is for people to meet in person, but it's quite a circus, and if you were to add up the entire carbon footprint of it, it'd be pretty massive. So let's delve into what happened during these crucial past few days here at COP26 for the two-day leader summit. What are some of the headline pledges that we've heard so far? Probably the one that environmental groups were getting most excited about was a deforestation deal. They've made a landmark commitment to work together to halt and reverse deforestation and land degradation by 2030. Not just halt, but reverse. And that means more leaders than ever before have now signed up to protect our forests. Brazil, amongst others, have signed up to it. There obviously remains to be seen what that will actually change. There was um, an arrangement on methane, on reducing methane. There was an announcement by India, the first time that India has pledged to get down to net zero. It's only by 2070, which is disappointing in some ways, but obviously that is a pledge that can be moved towards. There's also been more money, which is one of the big, big themes of it, that a lot of the less developed countries are saying, we do not pollute much, and yet we're the ones at the front line. If you want us to change the way that our economies operate as they grow, then you know the richer countries can have to chuck us a lot of cash. And there's been more commitments on that. But the kind of strange thing is that these two-day start points, when the leaders are there, are not really the crunch point for COP. It's almost once they go when the huge teams of people just meet in endless meeting rooms and try and, you know, thrash it all uh, out. So it's too early to say how well it's gone, but, you know, the, the, the noises seem to be almost cautiously positive now. One of the biggest wins, as you were talking about, was this deforestation deal. Zach Goldsmith, the Environment Minister, hailed it as an unprecedented package, um, but it, it was one of the sort of pre-packaged announcements that, that had come to the climate, had been really done before the, the COP conference had taken place. And we have also heard some scepticism about it, haven't we? It's a tricky one because it's very, very easy for leaders to sign up to this. And it's something that a lot of the developing world leaders have talked about as a kind of major priority for them. But then a lot of them have been talking about this for years and deforestation is going on and on and on. Brazil is a particular worry. Uh, the Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, is someone who, it's fair to say, is not entirely trusted. And in some countries also, too, this deforestation, particularly to clear land for soil or other crops like that, it's slightly wild west. If you're going to try and enforce that, you need potentially a lot of troops on the ground, which is very, very tricky. So again, it all comes back to whether richer countries can commit the resources and the money to help countries do all this. 
And there are a few countries as well who Boris Johnson, as the leader of the, the host country, might have wished to hear more from in terms of their pledges on emissions, right? I'm thinking particularly here about China, um, which is committed to net zero by 2050, but only peak emissions by 2030. And India, which, as you say, committed to net zero, but only by 2070, although it did um, make a promise on uh, trying to decarbonise its power sector by 2030 as well. Do you, do you think there might be some progress from these countries as, as, the, as the summit goes on? India is probably less of the worry because Narendra Modi, the Indian leader, was actually there. I mean, he's kept turning up to lots of meetings. I saw him talk a couple of times. And there's a sense of the Indians are engaged, you know, even if this 2070 target was not necessarily what Boris Johnson you know, wished for. The Chinese are a worry. They're completely absent. I mean, there's a delegation there. You know, they've been holding press conferences, things like that. The Chinese president, uh, Xi Jinping, doesn't basically leave China anymore, so was never going to go. But he was due to be delivering a video statement as part of this initial two days of speeches from leaders. But even that was downgraded to this kind of statement that didn't really say much. And China is the biggest emitter of carbon in the world. So if China isn't playing ball, then that's a big problem. We see the scorching sun is giving us intolerable heat. The warming sea is invading us. The strong winds are blowing us every which way. Our resources are disappearing before our eyes and our future is being robbed from us. Developing countries have voiced their anger, as you say, about the lack of commitment from developed countries, particularly on finance. Is Boris Johnson the right person to be making them feel better about this? Is he talking the talk and, um, and what do his actions say? It's a really interesting one because before we came to COP, I was amongst the press delegation that went to G20 in Rome and we got one of these traditional mini press conferences on the plane going over to Rome. And Johnson in the past, particularly when he was a journalist, was quite sceptical about, about the kind of climate issue um, and wrote a few articles saying he didn't necessarily think it was true. And on the plane I asked him, you know, he just delivered this great lecture on it to us and he sounded like a convert. And I said, you know, how did this evangelical change come from? And he said that when he became Prime Minister quite early on, some government scientists basically sat him down and gave him a kind of lecture with graphs about how bad the climate crisis really is. And he said, you know, it sounded like he was moving that direction anyway. But he said that was the moment we thought, oh my goodness, this is terrible. The issue with COP is that he's given a lot of speeches, he sounded very passionate, he said all the right words. But COPs in some ways are the end of the process, all about the preparation. And there is, in some quarters, a bit of feeling that, that unlike some prior governments hosting a COP, Johnson's government didn't really give it the full prep. There's this like kind of last-minute essay crisis feel, and I think that could tell over the next couple of weeks. And did the UK, as host of this conference, come out with any big announcements of our own? Not that I necessarily noticed. I mean, there's been, again, as you say, a lot of pre-packaged stuff, and we were kind of leading on the deforestation stuff. There was an announcement that had been trailed before about a new deal on green technology and stuff like that. I mean, one of the issues with Boris Johnson is that immediately before the beginning of COP, there was the uh, there was a budget which announced things like a cut in short-haul air passenger duty and the fact that car fuel duty would also not rise. And, and that's not necessarily the best example. And you could forgive maybe some leaders of developing nations for kind of saying to themselves, well, if the UK can't even be bothered to do this stuff, why should we make these really, really fundamental changes? ...to come, we must take care to guard against false hope and not to think uh, in any way 
that the job is done, because it is not. There is still a very long way to go. The Prime Minister wrapped up the World Leaders Summit yesterday evening with a press conference. And he kept using the phrase cautiously optimistic. And that was a bit of a shift in tone, wasn't it? Because over the weekend at the G20, where you were with him in Rome, he sounded really gloomy. What do you make of this? Do you think he has genuinely changed his mind about the prospect of a deal to keep 1.5 degrees alive? Or was there a bit, a bit of expectation management going on there in, in Rome? I think it's quite tricky because on the way to Rome, he kind of tried to explain it in terms of a football team. That if this was a football match, then the current score would be uh, 5-1 down uh, in the the match between humanity and climate change. But we hoped, you know, that the world could kind of come back. And then at the press conference, he was saying... We've pulled back a goal or perhaps even two. That Team World might have sneaked a couple of goals and things were looking up. It's hard to say. I mean, the announcements, there's been nothing particularly new. It's mainly been stuff that was built up to already happen during the early days of COP. And, you know, it's feasible. He's been in private meetings where, you know, his officials or officials from other countries are saying, look, this is going better than we thought. But a lot of the thing with COPs is just to kind of get the, get the kind of tone, get a positive tone. Because at the end of them, you know, even when the final statement is out, it's not necessarily always clear whether it's a success or it's not. Sometimes it's clear that it's not been. But a lot of it is about chivying people on. You know, Johnson is a kind of boosterist person. He really, really wants to almost make things better by trying to act as if they are. And that's perhaps what he's trying to do with COP. But, you know, COP might be something that's so big he simply can't do it. And the fishing rights row between France and Britain continues. While the French say both nations have reached a middle ground over the issue, the Brits say they that their previous position over the row remains unchanged. Now, you were with Boris Johnson in Rome at the weekend at the G20, where there was lots of talk about a fishing row with France, which kept coming up. How was Johnson seemed to be getting on with some of the other world leaders? He was insisting throughout it that him and France's President Macron have got a good relationship, and in some ways they kind of do. But there was this strange thing that they had a 30-minute one-to-one meeting with no-one else there, and they both seemed to emerge from it with a completely different idea of what they'd actually said to each other. The, the moment it was over, French officials started to brief that there was this agreement to de-escalate the fishing war and they were going to have a series of meetings and it was being, you know, leading towards some kind of deal. But then the official for number 10 was going, well, no, that's simply not the case. And no one quite knows what that was. It could just be, again, that Boris Johnson is, I don't know, quite good at making people believe he's saying something which he's not actually saying. But it was also quite strange because you have this thing where the French are kind of on a presidential election footing and are being more bellicose than they normally would be. And certainly for the first day and a half of G20, uh, Johnson really, really wanted to play it down. He was saying, I don't this, I don't want this to distract from COP. He kept on saying, what a bigger fish to uh, fry. But, but then by the end, you know, the British officials were starting to brief against the French. It's almost like it's one of these things that's happened so many times in the, in the, in the past. They can't stop themselves, really. Let's look then at the UK and its role as organisers of the COP more generally. How do you think they've been doing? Because there has been quite a lot of complaints about the chaos in Glasgow, hasn't there? And it wasn't a good look for the UK when they won an ironic Fossil of the Day award for not having uh, been inclusive enough about the people that were managing to get into the conference centre. And an Israeli minister was even unable to, to travel in because she said the summit wasn't wheelchair accessible. That is really, really bad. I mean, that was not a good look at all. It's 
quite a tricky one because delegates to these kind of conferences do like to complain an awful lot. It was the first COP I'd ever been to, but I've been to plenty of other international gatherings. And it's one thing that particularly journalists in a large group like to complain about. It's, I don't know, bad chairs, not enough desks, the coffee isn't any good or something. Queuing like that. for food, queuing for security. Queuing in particular. I mean, the queuing to get into the first couple of days of COP was really took a long time and it's quite tricky because there's thousands and thousands of people there there were a lot of security gates because everyone has to have their bags checked and things like that and they were all you know had people on them working as fast as they could so in some ways you're setting up this like city of i know up to about ten thousand people in one go which is partly in an exhibition center but partly in this kind of tented extension where all the media are and things are obviously bound to go wrong at some point. I mean, I think for some journalists who came from the G20, it was a bit of a shock because that was really, really well organised. And in particular, the catering there was extremely good. On that note, Peter Walker, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. And that's all from us this week. For daily updates on the remainder of COP26, make sure to listen to our sister podcast, Science Weekly. Each weekday, host Madeleine Finlay, who's on the ground in Glasgow, will be joined by The Guardian's award-winning environment team as they report on the most critical climate meeting ever to take place. So make sure to subscribe to Science Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, I want to thank my guest, Peter Walker. The producers this week were Danielle Stevens and Yolene Goffin, and I'm Rowena Mason. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.